This morning we will be in Acts chapter 7, if you uh, want to turn there. Last week we read the entirety of, uh, well, not the entirety of the chapter, most of it. We read verses 1 through 53. We're going to jump around a little more this week, and I'll tell you where we are once we get there. But if you turn to Acts chapter 7, that's a good starting place. This is part 2 on Stephen's speech in front of the Sanhedrin. And I'll tell you why uh, this is part two in a moment, just kind of how I've broken this up. But the more I thought about this this week and last week, this is a sermon that we need to hear. Right? You might say, well, isn't that every week? Well, I know there are some sermons we hear and we're tempted to, our minds instantly go to people out there and we think, oh, if they were only here, if only that person could have been there that Sunday or if, or if they could have joined us for worship, they would have really needed to hear that. Well, this is a sermon, sermon for us. This is a sermon for the religious conservatives. I know we are, we are not a mainline liberal church. Um, we are not a... Now, there might be... There are some people who, of course, exist uh, who would look at our church or our denomination and say that we're a liberal denomination. But we, we are conservative in our beliefs. We hold to tradition. We're, we hold to history. We ground ourselves in historic Christianity. We hold to um, historic creeds from the church. We are serious about our reading and we're serious about our study. This sermon is for us. Because the people that Stephen is in front of, they care about all those things too. They care about history and tradition and customs. They're constantly reading and thumbing through their scrolls. But they're blind. They've completely missed it. And they've put their faith in a structure, in this man-made building and this moral code, and they've completely missed the entire point. We need to be warned how easy that is to fall into, not miss the point, not miss the forest for a few trees. Before we get into it, I want to give you some more background information on Stephen, just so we're all on the same page. We first meet Stephen in Acts chapter 6. He's chosen to be one of those first servants in the church who was chosen to serve, specifically the Greek-speaking widows. There's a charge that uh, the widows are not being treated equitably. The Hebrew-speaking or the the Aramaic-speaking Widows are receiving more treatment, they're receiving favoritism, and the Greek-speaking ones are being neglected. And so seven men are chosen in the early church. Stephen is one of them. We're told that these are men of good repute. They're full of the Spirit. They're full of wisdom. Later, we read of Stephen. He was a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. So Luke is preparing us for what's coming. He's He's setting this up and giving us some, some uh, character background on Stephen. And we see that Stephen 
was faithful in a little and he is entrusted with more. He begins as a servant in the church caring for the most needy. And in time, we see him doing the work of an evangelist. We see him interacting with Greek-speaking Jews in a Greek-speaking synagogue. Now, Stephen is a Greek-speaking Jew, right? These are his people. He is a Greek-speaking Jew, and we see him in a Greek-speaking synagogue contending for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. We're told that some of the Jews in the synagogue, they rise up and they dispute with Stephen. You better believe that Saul of Tarsus would have been among them. We see him present at Stephen's stoning. He would have been present in the synagogue. Paul's, well, Saul, Paul, his hometown, Tarsus, was from an area called Cilicia. And people from that province were a part of this synagogue. So Saul would have been there. One of those who rose up and disputed with Stephen. And, and knowing Saul was there and knowing his intellect that we're going to see later, it, it is amazing. We're told that the Jews in the synagogue could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit of Stephen. He had an answer for every question. He would throw out questions to them and they were just dumbfounded. There was, there was nothing they could do. He was a... He, he was masterful in his apologia, his defense of the faith. So what do they do? They lie. They can't defeat him in argumentation, and so they lie and they bring charges against Stephen. We read in Acts chapter 6 that they secretly instigate men to lie and say, Hey, we've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. Right? This is this is not just a smear campaign. This is not just we want to make him look bad or we want people to think, "Hey, this is just some crazy guy, just ignore him." This was more than that. We'll see in a moment. If you're accusing someone of blasphemy, if they're found guilty, this is a death sentence. This is not simply a, "Hey, we're going to smear your name in the mud." We're going to make people think you're just Looney Tunes, and so they just need to ignore you. We want you to die. So they lie, accuse him of blasphemy. They stir up the people, and Stephen is seized, and he's brought before the council, and then they start to argue their case again falsely. There are two specific charges made. The main charge is blasphemy, but underneath the heading of blasphemy, you've got the two specific charges. We looked at one last week and we'll look at the other this week. We see those in verses 13 and 14. These false witnesses say, Stephen never ceases to speak words against the holy place. What's the holy place? The temple. He speaks words against the holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. So you've got two examples there of blasphemy. Number one, he's speaking against the temple. He's quoting Jesus. Jesus made this statement that he would destroy the temple and then rebuild it in three days, and that's just blasphemy. Stephen keeps repeating it. 
And then he's also speaking words against the law, not only the temple, but he also wants to change our customs that Moses delivered to us. He wants to do away with our law and those, or that is blasphemy. So last week we looked at Stephen's response to the first charge that he was blaspheming the temple. And I want to run back through it briefly in case you are not with us. Stephen takes on the temple. And he, ex- he begins to expose the sacred cows of his day. Sacred cows are non-essential things that have been made essential. And now that they've been made essential, you can't touch them. You can't question them. You can't crit- criticize them. You can never change or remove them. And that's how they saw the temple. It's how they saw the law. There was a lot of pride in the temple. It was a beautiful structure. I know that those who served within it were probably filled with pride that they were, they had the privilege of serving and ministering in the most beautiful building in the entire city. And Stephen comes to them and he gives them this message and he's saying, you who think you understand the temple so clearly have missed it. You've got this idea that the presence of God is limited to one place. You think if you're going to experience the presence of God, you have to be in this one building or this one mountain, Mount Zion, or in this one city. But that's never been the case. Never in the case of the history of redemption has God been isolated to one specific area. And so he goes through the history of the patriarchs. The history of these Men that they were so obsessed with, these names that they would comb through and, and read about and stay up late discussing. He goes through the history and he begins with Abraham. And he reminds them the God of glory appeared to Abraham in Mesopotamia, modern day Iraq, not Palestine. Not the Holy Land. He appeared in Iraq. And then later, when Abraham was in Haran, which is now Turkey. God was with him there. And for all this emphasis on this land that we have and we inhabit, Abraham never owned a square inch of it. And yet God was with him. And then he moves on to Joseph. And he walks through the Joseph narrative and he says God was with Joseph in the pit and in slavery and in Egypt and in prison and then in the palace. God was with him. And we see a slight change here because Abraham never owned one square inch of dirt in Canaan. Joseph's family does. They own a grave plot. A grave plot at Shechem. That's all they had. And yet God was with them. God was with this family, these 12 brothers that become the namesake of the 12 tribes of Israel. And all they owned in the Holy Land was a grave plot. Then he goes on to Moses. He shows that God was with Moses in in Egypt. He's with Moses in Midian. And with Moses in Mount Sinai, or in the Sinai wilderness. And then there's this comment about holy ground. God tells Moses this 
the voice from the bush tells Moses to remove his sandals for he's standing on holy ground. Now, we pointed out last week that he is not near Mount Zion. He's not in the promised land. He is in the Sinai wilderness. Somewhere on that peninsula. And yet he's told it's holy ground. Why is it holy? Holy ground is wherever God meets with his people. And I reminded us last week that we are meeting with our God now. During this time. We don't have to go to some special land or some special building. Whenever God meets with his people, it's holy ground. Then he goes on to King David and King Solomon, who lead up to the building of the temple. King David is not allowed to build it, but he can gather the materials and make all the preparations. And then once Solomon comes to power, the temple is built. And as you're going to learn in Sunday school, I mean, Solomon was a man of excess. He was a man who had everything and had incredible wealth. And his temple that he builds is a reflection of of his wealth and his just over the top. Everything he does is huge. It's the same with his temple. And so they might be tempted to think, all right, we finally arrived. We own the land. We've pushed out our enemies. We've built this beautiful temple, this glorious temple for our God. And yet, what does God say? He says, the Most High does not dwell in a house made by hands. Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me? What is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You finally have the land, you finally have the temple, and God just... He removes this confidence from them because we have the temple because we have the building because we're on this holy mountain we're fine no Stephen shows them that that is not the case and the importance and centrality of the temple is undercut and they don't like it well the second charge is that Stephen is speaking against the law of Moses that he wants to strip away all of their Customs that Moses has handed down to them. And that's what we're going to look specifically at today. In Acts chapter 7, beginning in verse 17. So if you would turn there with me. Acts 7, beginning in verse 17. We're going to read 17 to 45. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt, until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight and was brought up For three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in words and deeds. 
When he was 40 years old, it came to his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling, and he tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. When the Lord, uh, then the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals from your feet. For the place where you are standing is holy ground. I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I've heard their groanings, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses, who led us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days, and offered a sacrifice to the idol, and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away. And gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the books of the prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifice during the forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god Rephan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he'd seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David. Now on to verse 51. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. So do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? 
And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. So Stephen is responding to this charge of blasphemy. As I said earlier, it was a high charge if carried out, which we do see it carried out. It brought with it the death penalty. You can turn back to Leviticus 24, and you see this command given. Whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregations shall stone him. So this is precedent. And so when they are accusing Stephen of blasphemy, this is not some harmless thing. This is not just mud on his name. They want him dead. Now, it's possible Stephen thought it wouldn't escalate to that point. Because at some time, the Romans had come in and said, all right, we aren't going to allow you to execute your own people anymore. If you want to execute your own, if someone breaks your laws and your customs and blasphemes your God, you're going to have to come to us first. We see an example of this. You think of John 18 when Jesus is arrested and he goes before Caiaphas and he's before the high priest and then eventually they take him to Pilate. Pilate goes out and speaks to them and says, what accusation do you bring against this man? And they essentially say, well, if he wasn't doing anything evil, we wouldn't have brought him to you. And Pilate doesn't want anything to do with it. And he says, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. And the Jews responded by saying, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Okay, by whose law? Well, Roman law. The Romans weren't going to allow that. It's possible Stephen had some confidence that he would be protected by this Roman law if he was falsely charged with this blasphemy. Maybe he thought that. Who knows? We're entering into some speculation there. But either way, his response that we see is filled with boldness and conviction. So he responds. And they obviously don't like what he's been saying. And here again, we don't know exactly what he's been saying. We know that he's been a faithful witness to the gospel. And so there are some implications we can assume. We can assume that Stephen was pointing out that the need for sacrifices had come to an end. That after the cross, there is no more need for bulls and goats and turtle doves to be offered to atone for sin. He may have even made a comment to them like, did you really think that was doing the trick? These bulls and goats and Birds that are being killed, do you really think that's enough to cover you? 
If you do, you have quite a low view of sin. And if, it, if they do cover your sin, then why in the world do you keep having to offer them over and over and over again? These sacrifices that you're trusting in, that you hold so dearly to you, you have to make offerings every day, over and over and over again. But I'm telling you that there's one sacrifice made for all time. We see this echoed in Hebrews 10. The writer of Hebrews says in the first four verses of chapter 10, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Saying if these really worked, you wouldn't have to come back to them. You could just be one and done. But day after day, year after year, you're reminded that this is a shadow pointing ahead to something greater that's coming. I'd be confident Stephen went somewhere similar in his argumentation. They didn't like it. He probably pointed out, you're missing the whole point of the law. You're missing the function of the law. The law is that which drives sinful men and women to a Savior. I, uh, I listened to one pastor who was preaching on this text, and he, um, he had experience with sheep. I don't have any experience with sheep, but he had experience with sheep. And for a sheep's well-being, it has to be deloused, and it has to just be completely bathed in these chemicals that will kill the bugs that reside down deep in the sheep's wool. The sheep don't want anything to do with this water. They want nothing to do with it. So what happens is the sheep are in this enclosure. There's a fence around them, and the fence is portable. And over time, the, the shepherd will go around and slowly move in the fences. And little by little, it starts to inch closer and closer, and this pasture, this, this paddock, begins to just shrink until there's nowhere else to go. The walls close in around that sheep until he only has one choice, and it's to go in that cleansing water. And we see that's the purpose of the law. It closes in around us. It shows us our guilt. It it convicts us of sin. It shows us our need, and it drives us to the cleansing water. It drives us to the one who will say, this is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Maybe those are some of the things Stephen said that incited them. This charge that you're misunderstanding the law. I mean, he's talking to the professionals. 
And I mean, they, they had to laugh at that assertion that you're completely missing it. You're misunderstanding the law. You're misunderstanding Moses. Let me tell you about Moses. And so that's what he does. And it's really interesting, the function here, or the, the outline here. I don't know if you noticed this when we read through it, but as Stephen talks about Moses, he divides Moses up into three blocks, and each block is made up of 40 years. Moses' early years from, from childhood until defending a Hebrew slave and killing an Egyptian, that's 40 years. And then from that moment when he runs away after killing the, the Egyptian until God calls him at Mount Sinai, that's another 40 years. And then his return to Egypt and leading the people out another 40 years. So in the first 40 years, we have Moses' birth. We're told he's beautiful in God's sight. That's not the exact translation you'll see if you turn back to Exodus 2. 2. As Stephen was probably working out of the Septuagint. I'm sure he was. That's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And that's where this beautiful in God's sight comes from. He tells us Moses spent his first three months in his father's house until it became impossible for his family to conceal him. And so they had to let him go and trust him to God's care. And their prayers are, are, are answered. Pharaoh's daughter adopts him and brings her up, brings him up as her own. And we see that Moses gets a world-class education. You know, when you read through Exodus, and I mean, we spent two years going through Exodus previously, there, there wasn't a whole lot of times in that study I would read about Moses or I'd read his words and say, I'm reading the words of the Egyptian. I mean, genetically, he is, he's a Hebrew, but in all... I mean, really, in all senses of the word, he is, he is an Egyptian. From three months on, his entire childhood is spent in the house of Pharaoh. He's receiving world-class education. He's learning all about their culture and their religion. He spoke their language. He, he knew their music, their artwork. He was fully Egyptian. And we see that God is... Preparing him. And then in this second 40 years, he, we're told it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And so he goes out and he witnesses one being beaten. We're told that he was being wronged. And so he steps up. He identifies with this oppressed man and defends him and kills the slave driver who was doing the beating. Maybe there were some thoughts going through his head. Like, all right, this is my moment. This is when I rise up and identify with my people. And I've I've been prepared. I know this government. I know how it works. I've got friends in high places. Maybe we can start a revolution. Free these people. He, He supposed that, we're told in the text, he supposed that the people would understand. God has brought us salvation through Moses. God is going to save us. He's going to rescue us from from our bondage through Moses. That's what Moses thought. And then then they reject him. 
the same man who had been rescued and defended by Moses the next day says, who made you a ruler and a judge? Are you going to kill me just like you killed the Egyptian? They rejected Moses. This is a common pattern we're going to see. Them rejecting Moses. And then out of fear, Moses runs away. He flees into Midian where he starts a family. And then we start the third 40-year block. Moses is keeping sheep in the Sinai wilderness when all of a sudden a bush catches on fire and is not consumed. And he hears the voice of the Lord saying, I am the God of your fathers. I have seen the affliction of my people in Egypt. I have come down to deliver them and I will send you to Egypt. We saw that. We studied that recently. Moses returns and he performs signs and wonders in Egypt and also at the Red Sea. He leads the people into the wilderness and they spend 40 years there. And again, we see them reject their Savior, their Deliverer, their Mediator standing between them and God. They rejected Him in Egypt and now they reject Him in the wilderness. They say, oh, that Moses, we don't know what's become of him. Let's worship a golden calf instead. Stephen is showing that the people of Israel have a history of rejecting their Savior. They have a history, this proclivity of rejecting and despising, despising the Redeemer that God has sent them. They did it with Moses over and over and over again. And he says, do you remember what Moses wrote back in Deuteronomy 18? Moses predicted that God would raise up from among you a prophet like me. There was this promise of redemption, and yet they, just like always, have rejected a mediator. They've rejected their deliverer. Stephen's saying, I'm not denying the law. I'm trying to point you to the true purpose of the law. It is not meant to be worshipped. It's meant to drive you to the Savior, to show you your inability, and to show you your need. He says, I'm not speaking against Moses. I'm identifying with Moses as, as another one who is in service to God, who has the message of salvation, and you have rejected it. You've turned this into a cult of Moses. You've exalted the law. You've venerated this man. But you're denying what he taught. You know, we can easily fall into that same trap. Uh, An example is we can can begin to... uh, Treat the word of God in this same way. Let me explain what I mean before you accuse me of blasphemy. We can buy expensive copies of the scriptures. You know, pastors nerd out over this. We can get a Bible wrapped in goat skin 
that can just be so supple and you open it and it just falls open. And you can get it with premium paper. You pick out your favorite translation or your study Bible and you get it rebound and it's just gorgeous to look at. Replace the ribbons. And then we bring it with us. It sits beside our bed. We take it with us on trips. It might own a place of prominence in the house. And we may even thumb through it. Mark in it. Highlight in it. I know there's strong opinions either way on that. But we read through it. We can do all that. And still it can fail to take root in our hearts. That's the mistake that Sanhedrin was making and it's a mistake that we can fall into and we pray that the Lord would spare us from that. We pray that his word would take root, that the gospel would take root and that we would be changed and we wouldn't be those who just assume that because I own this nice copy of God's word and it sits beside my bed, I'm just going to absorb it Osmosis. And pray it takes root. Then you have Stephen's big finish. And he makes three accusations against them. Now he's been pretty gentle up to this point. They could have been just standing there like, all right, okay, we know this. Uh, Abraham, yeah, we got Abraham. I got I wrote my dissertation on Moses. What are you talking about? Like the, the entire time he's giving this history and then he gives this finish. And he charges them first with resisting the Holy Spirit. And notice everything he says here, nothing is new. This is something you have always done. This is something that has always been characteristic of them. You have always resisted the Holy Spirit. He calls them stiff-necked. Where have we heard that phrase before? Exodus. I mean, the more we make our way through Acts, I'm, okay, I know the Bible is all one story and there's one thread of redemption running through it. But I mean, honestly, coming from Exodus to Acts, it is amazing the parallels. He calls them a stiff-necked people. It's the same term God uses for his people after they make the golden calf and they're caught worshiping it. The insinuation here is that the Sanhedrin, they're doing the same thing. You're the same people doing what you've always done. Biblical uh, biblical unfaithfulness, you're worshiping idols. You're worshiping things made of your hands, not the God who gave them to you. You're rejecting his message. You're rejecting his messengers in favor of an unholy cow. And then he makes this comment. He says that they are uncircumcised in heart and ears. There would have been pride that they had the sign of the covenant. The men had the sign of circumcision, saying that they belonged. They were, they were clean. They were a part of the covenant community. And they, they found great comfort in that, that the, the barbarians and the pagans on the outside, they, 
They are not circumcised. They don't belong to the people of God, but we do. And he says, you're uncircumcised in heart and ears. You may have been given the physical sign on the eighth day after your birth, but you are spiritually dead. You are deaf. You can't hear. You're resisting the Holy Spirit. And unless a work of God, a miracle happens, you will remain in your sins. So that's the first thing. They're resisting the Holy Spirit. Number two, he says, you kill and persecute the prophets as you have always done. Again, this is not something new. Jeremiah was stoned to death. Isaiah was sawn in two under the reign of Manasseh. Micah was killed uh, by Joram, son of King Ahab, after Micah rebuked him. Amos was tortured by a priest. And then the priest's son clubbed Amos and mortally wounded him. This is nothing new. messenger of God came to them and they put him on the cross. Stephen stands in their temple and brings them the gospel and they stone him. There is nothing new here. And then the third charge is that they were breaking the law of Moses. He says, you're so obsessed with this law. You're worshiping this law and you aren't even keeping it. You have so much pride in it. And you're rising up to defend it, you're saying, and you can't even keep it. Well, these three charges infuriated them, and they would listen no more, and so they take Stephen out and stone him. We'll see that next week. But the truth is that the moment they killed Stephen, Stephen became more alive than he had ever been. And he sees a, a vision of that the moment before his death. And while his body laid there motionless on the ground and everyone else around him was still alive, they were on a path that leads to eternal death. I saw something really cool yesterday. I was reading through 1 Timothy 3 and I saw Paul say something. This comes from that spectacular passage where Paul describes himself as the foremost of sinners. Do you know what he says before that? Paul is describing himself and he says, Formerly, I was a blasphemer. So in this story, Paul had to be there. We, we know he's there at the execution. He had to be there on the ground for this entire thing. This, this uh, false trial of convicting Stephen of blasphemy and now his eyes have been opened and we see the truth it was not Stephen it was me I was the blasphemer I was the persecutor I was the insolent opponent but his eyes were opened his eyes were opened by the Holy Spirit and he was brought to new life and he was forgiven and he was shown that his worth and his dignity is not found in a a law. It's not found in a location. It's not found in his 
lineage or his pedigree. It's found in the cleansing work of Jesus Christ and him alone. May we, may we experience that same miracle. The Spirit coming into our hearts, bringing us new life. Let's pray. Father God, this is obviously not something we can do ourselves. Dead men and dead women can't make themselves alive. This is something that only you can do. So Lord, we ask, continue, continue to bring more to the table. Bring more to the feast. Bring more who who are trusting in themselves and worshiping the things of their hands and rejecting the gospel that is clear and right before them. Father, open their eyes just as you opened Paul's and use us just as you used Paul to build your church, to encourage one another, to give glory to you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.